As uh, today we are going to continue our series called Home Team. We're talking about you and uh, and me, our marriages and our families, and and today we are talking about marriage, that partnering for success. I want you to know, as a teacher, I, I feel a bit burdened as I approach a topic like this, and one of the reasons for that is that I know so many of you uh, have been through a divorce in the past, and somewhere between twenty to thirty percent, and. And so what I don't want to do is open up old wounds for you or uh, make you feel guilty for something that, you know, is long gone or things like that. God has forgiven, restored you, restored your family. We want the very best for you in your future. And, and so that's one reason. Another reason is anytime a pastor talks about marriage, you're aware that there's a percentage of the, of the crowd that is single. And maybe you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. And, uh, and, and so maybe it's not relevant. But it is relevant because maybe you'll be encouraging somebody who's married at some point or, or, or maybe they're in a hurting situation or maybe you will be married someday. Or, or, uh, and I just want you to know, anytime the Word of God is opened up, it's always a blessing to us regardless. And, and, uh, and so today, just be attentive to what God's going to teach you. And, but the primary reason that I'm burdened uh, today by this topic is that I know that many of you are in desperate need of some divine help in your marriage. And on the outside, you look great, but on the inside, you guys are struggling together. And, and so we want to approach this topic with sensitivity and also with just opening up the Word of God and say, God, what would you say to us about our marriages? And so in light of that, I want to pray for you as we get started. God, I just ask that as we open up your Word today, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us, that we would learn more about what it means to be married together, what it means to encourage and love our spouse and God, I just pray the restoration of marriages. I pray, God, for uh, the redemption of relationships and the, that, Lord, that you would find, we'd find healing in you. And, and so, God, I pray that we would listen to your word, let it speak to us today, and let it ultimately change us. And God, thank you for the institution of the family. Thank you, God, that uh, those that believe in you and that are leading their children well. And, and so, God, we just pray that you continue to bless that effort. We ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a lot of times we'll say funny things about marriage because uh, it kind of takes the pressure off. Uh, Paul White just told me, you know why they're all happy in Mayberry, Andy Griffith land? None of them are married, right? So uh, amen, all right? Except for, uh, except for Otis, he was married. And, uh, but I read recently about a golden anniversary party that was thrown for an elderly couple the husband was uh, very moved by the occasion. He wanted to tell his wife what he thought of her. And so she was a little hard of hearing and, and often misunderstood what he said. So there were a lot of family members there and friends gathered around. And, and so he decided he would toast her on this special occasion. My dear wife, after 50 years, I've found that you are tried and true. Everybody clapped for them. But his wife was a little irritated. She said, what'd you say? He said, he said it again, after 50 years of marriage, I found you are tried and true. Now the wife was visibly upset and she shouted back, well, let me tell you something, buddy. After 50 years, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> and some of you are just that way. You're just plain tired today. I mean, in your marriage, on the outside, you look good, but on the inside, it's, it's wearing you out. And sadly, our culture today is not reinforcing marriage. It's actually oftentimes coming against the family. James Dobson said five out of ten marriages are ending in conflict and divorce, and of the five couples that remain together, only one 
uh, will achieve intimacy and oneness in their partnership. Marriage is this complex relationship, perhaps the most intricate on the face of the earth. And unfortunately, when many of us say, I do, we don't realize all of the dynamics that make a good marriage. And, and in fact, a lot of times people end up saying, well, I just married the wrong person. And we'll hear that in counseling a lot. Somebody will say, well, as our marriage is crumbling, I just married the wrong person. That's all there is to it. But, but more often than not, being right or wrong for somebody depends not on some mysterious compatibility quotient, but on how willing and able we are to meet our spouse's needs. In other words, spouses need to learn to serve one another. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 today, and it's one of the best uh, passages on marriage. But before we get into that, I want to provide some framework today with three propositions that I think are kind of fundamental to understanding marriage. And pr proposition one is that our two most basic needs, I think, are for security and significance. Security and significance. We can define security as an awareness of being unconditionally, totally loved. We all want that. We all want to know that we are loved by somebody. And significance is the realization that I am valuable and that what I'm doing in my life is valuable, that what I do day to day is making a difference. And those two needs are so important that if a person lacks either one, he or she is unable to function effectively in a marriage relationship. Proposition two, our most basic problem in marriage is that we look to the wrong source for our security and our significance. And I want to suggest that God never intended a wife to find her ultimate security in her husband or for a husband to find his total significance through his relationship with his wife. Now, I don't want you to check out on this next phrase because this is something that you would think a pastor would say. But the reality is that our significance and our security is found in God and God alone. That in Him is where we find that we are ultimately and unconditionally loved and that who we are as a person, we find significance in Him. That the accomplishments that we accomplish, that He is proud of those things because of who we are. He created us. He sustains us. He loves you. Proposition three is our most basic responsibility in Christian marriage is to become reinforcers of that security and significance that come from God. You see, if you are looking for your spouse to become the one where you find significance and security, they will always fall short because we are imperfect human beings. And so when they let you down, You'll think, I wonder why they're doing this. Why won't they treat me better? Why won't they do this better? And what you're missing is that your ultimate security and significance is found in Christ and Christ alone. But I believe that God has established the marriage relationship as a reinforcement of the security and significance that's found in Christ. In other words, that they are reinforcing those very values. They're creating an environment that would reinforce those things. But here's what often happens. Rather than being reinforcement of the security and significance we found in Christ, our marriage is often a place where those things are rejected, where we are rejecting the significance or security that should be found in Christ. In other words, we are oftentimes providing environments where we are tearing down the very fabric of what God has established in our spouse as a human being and a creation of God. 
Ephesians chapter 5 really delves into this deeper, this idea of significance and security when it talks about these two ideas of love and respect. And Ephesians 5 is just a great passage on marriage. Verse 21 begins by addressing both spouses. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so really the third S word there is submission. And it just means that the both of us are going to submit our lives to Christ. It's unacceptable for anyone to exalt themselves as better than others, that when we submit ourselves to Christ, and that is where we find our significance and our security. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. We are called to humbly submit ourselves to Christ, and in that we are mutually submitting to one another and, and we are finding ways to meet the needs of the other person. Now, this idea in Ephesians 5 is an idea of what we call love and respect. Years ago, a guy named Egrich wrote a book called Love and Respect. It's a great book on this topic, and it really describes kind of the husband's role and the wife's role in a relationship. And I'm going to try to delve into that today. So husbands, let's talk to you guys for a while. And the, and the, and the command here is husbands, love your wife. How do we do that? Number one, sacrifice for her. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that is one way that we love. We sacrifice. Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross, but he gave himself up. He gave his life on our behalf. And we're to love like that, where we are self-sacrificial. We give time. We give energy. We give focus. We sacrifice together. A servant's heart. And by the way, a strange thing happens when you are sacrificing for your spouse, you begin to feel more love for your spouse. That's why when you have a little baby at home, that baby really, let's just be honest, other than cooing occasionally, has done very little for you, right? Except bring you pain, your interruption, and sleepless nights, and worry, and a lot of changed diapers. But you love that baby. Why? Not only because you created it, but also because as you sacrifice for it, you find yourself loving that baby even more. The Bible says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice for her. Number two, minimize her faults. Verse 26 and 27 says, love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And that's the great thing about being a Christian. When God sees you, he looks past all of the blemishes and all of the scars and says, I want to see you through the righteousness of Christ. And it's one of the benefits of just God's grace in our life. He sees you as perfectly righteous because he sees you through the eyes of Christ. Now, in a relationship, do we tend to look that way or do we tend to look the other? In other words, do we tend to minimize someone's faults or do we tend to maximize their faults? I mean, don't we tend to look at somebody and say, I know your faults, I know your weaknesses, I know where you are prone to, to fail, therefore I will exploit those. And too often in a marriage, rather than minimizing faults, we try to maximize them, we try to expose those faults, and in that we're, we are rejecting the very significance and security that God provides. 
Number three, nurture her. Verse 28 and 29, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Christ feeds the church. He feeds it through the Bible. He gives us his word. He guides the church through the Holy Spirit. He nurtures the church into a deeper relationship. And he says, husbands, that's your responsibility. Nurture the needs of your wife, physical, spiritual, emotional. And William Harley uh, wrote a book years ago called uh, His Needs, Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. And Harley lists five needs that uh, he believes that women have. And here they are. Number one, and guys, you might want to write these down because we tend to forget stuff. Number one, affection. She needs to know that she's loved and valued. And he talks about the need for physical affection just through holding hands or a touch. The second need is for conversation. She needs someone who will talk with her and listen attentively. That's why she'll say, tell me what you're thinking or what you're feeling. Third, she needs trust. She needs to trust you. She wants security of being able to depend on you. You are trustworthy. Fourthly, she wants financial security. That doesn't mean you have to be rich, but she wants the assurance that there'll be enough of the essentials for tomorrow, and she doesn't have to be anxious about it every day. That's what, why the Bible says the man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And fifth, she needs family commitment. She wants you to be a good father. That's why she wants you to be there with the children. She wants you to be able to relate well to her family. And a good husband is sensitive to those needs, feeds them, cares for them, nurtures those needs in his wife. In the book, The Joy of Committed Love, Gary Smalley says, a wife needs a shoulder, not a mouth. Ouch. He recites a wife who cried, if my husband would just put his arms around me and embrace me when we're having trouble instead of lecturing me, everything would be okay. And, and that's, that's difficult for those of us who like to fix things. Verse 31 is an ultimate expression of love, and it's number four, which is be committed. Verse 31 says, for this woman, what reason? A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The relationship with a husband and wife is to be a reflection of Christ's faithfulness to us. You know, men, there is one primary reason that we aren't committed to our wives, and this is also, and you'll see this in a minute, for wives as well, and that is what we'll call unfair comparisons. We are all notorious for looking over our shoulder and saying, what if I had only married that guy, that girl in high school? What if I were single and could ask that person out? What if I had married somebody like that? And unfair comparisons make us restless and critical and make our uh, spouse insecure. Men, if there was only one woman alive in the world and that woman was your wife right now, would you be content with her? I think you would. It's kind of like the guy who fumed at his girlfriend. I wouldn't marry you if you were the last woman alive on earth. And she said, I know you wouldn't. You would get killed in the rush. We are to be committed. Jim Conway wrote, a, wrote the book, Men in Midlife Crisis, and he writes this about his wife, Sally. He said, Sally is in the final stages of cancer. Cancer has moved into her spine, and she is confined to her bed at home. And Jim nurses her every day, changes her diaper, tries to feed her, dresses an open wound, takes care of her every need as she dies. Why would he do that? Because she's so physically attractive at that point or because it's easy for him? No, because he made a commitment years ago to love in sickness and in health until death do us part. 
And man, I think that's the kind of love that God expects, a sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives. And then he says, the wife must respect your husband. And isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't say husbands, uh, it doesn't say husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands. Why? Because God who created us created us differently with innate differences. Now I know there's a whole movement out there that says that men and women are all the same, we have all the same everything, and we all have the same emotions. And that's just not true. The, the book years ago, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, has a lot to say about these differences, and here are some of them. Uh, one of them is the way we use the remote control. Uh, and this is true in our family. Lisa likes to stay in land, stay in land. She'll stay in land on Hallmark for days on end. I mean, Hallmark still has Christmas movies right now. It's crazy. Like Friday night Christmas movies. I don't watch TV that way. I jump. I like, I go to a commercial, jump. I go to a commercial on the other one, I jump. I can literally watch three programs at the same time and uh, constantly jumping, staying up with all the storylines. We just use it differently. The way we determine our clothes are dirty. Women by sight, men by smell. Amen? If it smells good, I'm wearing it. The length of time it takes to get ready for bed. I can, I can go red, get ready for bed in a second. It takes a little bit longer for the woman. And our attitude towards shopping. For women, it's an event. For men, it's the hunt. I mean, give me a list. I want to know what you want, and I will find it. Give me the size, give me the color, give me the deal, and I am on the hunt. Women stop and ask for directions. Men tend to not. Men stop to fix a flat tire. Women tend to not. Men never wear another man. That one's going to get me in trouble, I guess. The silence is, def <laughs> is deafening. Wow. Men never wear another man's clothes or accompany another man to the bathroom. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Never happens. And when we're on the beach, our towels cannot even touch. It's just an unspoken rule. And you'll never, ever see a woman clean her ear with a car key. It will never happen. <laughs> Men and women are just different. And so wives, let's look at verse 33. Respect your husband. Verse 33, the wife must respect her husband. Just as God commands the husband to love, he commands the wife to respect. That's not an option here. It's not once he makes as much money or he does this or does that, I will respect him. Wives are instructed to respect their husbands regardless of their status in the world. We tell our teenagers, respect that teacher at school. Even though that teacher may not be the best, he's still the teacher. And so uh, call him by his last name or her last name and do what they say because their position, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's just respect. And wives are to respect their husbands. And so how do we do that? Number one, acknowledge his leadership. Verse 23 and 24 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives who submit their husband, to their husbands in everything. And I know, that's a difficult passage, and it's so countercultural today. And uh, I know that back in the day, preachers used to really hammer on those kinds of things, and, and it's been used to, 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 to do the wrong kind of thing and have the wrong kind of attitude by some not-so-great husbands. But all it is is God in his wisdom designed that there should be a leader and with leadership comes accountability and responsibility. And it really means that God's saying to the husband, you're responsible and accountable for your family. So, so goes you guys, so goes your family. So be responsible to the family. Under the lordship of Christ, you're to be submissive to him. You're to be submissive to one another. 
Now, men, it doesn't say to be the dictator and she's the doormat. In verse 21, it says that you're to be submissive to one another. But verse 23 says, Jesus is the head of the church and he's also the Savior. How did he lead? Jesus was ultimately accountable for the church. He led by not being by demanding that he be obeyed, but by being sacrificial. And through that sacrifice, then we as his followers are willing to say, that's somebody that I want to follow. Number two, seek to meet his needs. In verse, chapter, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Meet his needs. Now, we meet one another's needs. And so in the book by William Harley, His Needs, Her Needs, he lists five most important needs of husbands. And I don't know, you guys can evaluate these if this is true in your life. The first is sexual fulfillment. Harley says that women need to understand that that is a significant uh, topic and something that, uh, that he will desire. His second need is recreational companionship. He wants his wife to be a companion with him. And by that, he means you share hobbies together, you enjoy life together. Maybe the wife doesn't want to go deer hunting or the football game, but we ought to develop some common interest, things that we are both interested in together. The third that he says is that he wants his spouse to be attractive to him. And some of you might immediately go, well, how does that happen as I continue to age? And he doesn't say that you have to look or be like you were at 21. He's saying that there is this inner poise, this strength that happens, that you take care of yourself, that that, that is one of the needs of a husband. Fourthly, he says domestic support, that it's really important that the home be a place of security and peace, a place where there's fun and love in the home. Fifth, he needs admiration. He needs somebody to be proud of him. He wants the wife to regard him with respect and look at him as a champion. Somebody said, every woman needs to be loved and every man needs to be admired. And oftentimes at weddings, I'll read from Ephesians chapter 5 and we'll describe this passage. And we'll say, you know, the day of the wedding is so important because that bride has been preparing for that day really her whole life. Isn't that true? And you've been dress shopping Look, the guy doesn't even worry about his text size until like a couple weeks before, right? And, and the, but everything is prepared. And when she comes in that room, everybody stands because everybody knows this is really her day. And, and we say a lot of times in that moment that that day we are really treating her like a princess. And, and the point we're making is that every woman wants to be treated that way, wants to be loved. But every man wants to have somebody that he's a champion to. Somebody that admires him. And that's exactly why the scripture says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Ladies, don't underestimate the desire for a man to have admiration. Let me give you a hypothetical illustration. Let's say that someone plays pretty well uh, on a certain game in softball, makes a a couple diving catches in the outfield, slides into the bases. Uh, Their team wins the tournament. After the game is over, hypothetically, walking to the car, doing so well at this tournament. At first, the, the first question is, where are we going to eat? And the second thing is, you better dust yourself off before getting the car dirty. Now, hypothetically, what he might prefer to be said is, you are fantastic. The people in the stands were just loving those catches. That one ball, I never thought you would ever get it. You must be the fastest runner of all time. Now, I don't know why, but that is what we want, 
isn't it? I mean, we want somebody to say, hey, great job. Man, that was incredible. That, that thing that you did, that was the best ever. And I'm so proud of you. Ladies, don't underestimate the power of affirmation in a man's life. Next, be committed to him. Verse 31 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Just as it's the same for the wife, it's the same for the husband. The woman respects her husband by being committed. Verse 31 applies to both. You leave your father and mother, and you're united to one another. But Satan, just like with the man, lures the woman into unfair comparisons, unrealistic fantasies. The woman, whisper, Satan whispers to her through uh, the television or magazine or uh, or even online, that your own creative imagination sometimes can say that couple is better than we are or that story is better than ours or that man is better than you are. And what happens is that it begins to undermine the marriage relationship. Make the most of your present situation. Bloom where you're planted. Be committed. When Cortez landed in the new world, he burned his ships behind him to demonstrate to the men, we're staying here and we're not going back. And when you stand before the preacher and you say, till death do us part, you'll be much more committed if you burn your ships behind you and say, I'm committed to this relationship. Focus on the Family years ago had an article that gave some research that talked about all of the value of the traditional family a lot of the reasons why we should value the traditional family and how that makes a difference in the outcome of our kids, their success in the future, et cetera, et cetera. But they entitled the article, God Knows Best. And I think that's just true. When it comes to the home and it comes to any relationship, God knows best. And no matter how broken your home is, no matter how shattered your relationship, He knows what is best for you in your future. He alone can forgive you and heal you and restore you. And so I want to encourage you today to really seek to yield to him. Dig into this passage. Ask yourself, God, not what is God saying to my spouse, but God, what, is say, what are you saying to me? And that you would ultimately find your security and your significance in not your spouse, but in your relationship with Christ. That you would deepen that relationship and then that you would begin to pray, God, how can I be a reinforcement of this in the life of my spouse? Friends, somebody told me this a long time ago, and it fits here. My response is my responsibility. My response is my responsibility. I must focus on what I must do, regardless how my spouse is fulfilling his or her role. And that's true for all of us. Be committed, regardless what kind of storms are coming across your bow. I love the story of Isidore and Ida Krauss, who were passengers on the ill-fated Titanic. Ida refused at least two opportunities to get on a lifeboat. She just couldn't think about going down or leaving and letting her husband go down with the ship. 41 years they were married. He was a well-known philanthropist, owner of Macy's department store. And when their children received the news that their mother had chosen to die with their father, they weren't surprised. They said, oh, if they were ever apart, they would write each other every day. They'd, prefer, they'd refer to each other as darling. They just couldn't stand to be apart. But as the Titanic was going down, Ida, who was 63 years old, was encouraged to get on a lifeboat. And instead, she grabbed her maid and got her on the boat. She took off her coat and she gave it to her maid. She was like, I'm not going to need that anymore. 
And uh, later she was conjoled into a lifeboat. And her husband, Isidore, as she got on that lifeboat, turned to walk away. It was more than he could stand. And it was also more than she could stand. She got out of the lifeboat a second time and she joined him on the deck. They said the last they saw of them, they were clasped and embraced. Their love is memorialized in a Bronx cemetery that's inscribed, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. What a beautiful picture of a couple that says, no matter what's happening around us, we are together. And it's that kind of commitment that allows us to be in it for the long haul. Love is not just a contract, it's a covenant. It's not just right chemistry. It's developing and deepening that relationship over the years. And so in a moment, I want to pray for you all as you process this and you think about it in your own life, your own marriage, about your own role, about first finding that significance and security in Christ alone, and then being a reinforcement of those things within the life of your spouse. How can I help them feel secure, in other words, in our love, and how can I feel, help them feel significant, in other words, in the way that I view them and how I admire them and appreciate them. And so to that end, I want to pray for you. God, we just pray today that you would help us to think about, God, our role. And, and God, you would help us to walk through um, this, this challenge of marriage, but also this uh, beautiful thing called marriage, God, that you would help us to deepen that relationship by first deepening our relationship with you. And then, God, I pray that uh, you would enable us to continue to grow and develop and to, to do what the Bible says, to not seek our own needs, but to seek the interests and the needs of the other first. And that, God, when we do that, there's a beautiful um, synergy that happens as two people come together and they seek to love you more and through that relationship and meeting the needs of the other, they seek to deepen that relationship as well. God, we love you. We thank you. And so today we do indeed turn our eyes upon you first and foremost. And through that focus and through that relationship, God, we pray that you would deepen the relationships that, that are around us on this earth with our kids, with our spouse, with our friends. So God, we pray for this and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.